Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. Many people throughout the ages have had dreams, intuitions, amazing premonitions, and unexpected encounters that feel set up by the divine intervention, an infinite mind. And in fact, these things simply cannot be explained in any other way. My guest today has helped people to notice the whispers of infinite mind, to talk about them more freely, and to realize how cherished each of us is. He says, you can unlock your deeper spiritual capacities for creative love. And we're going to talk about how. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, open your heart and mind, and settle into your essential wholeness. As I introduce our guest, Dr. Stephen G. Post is the best-selling author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People. The British Medical Journal designated his book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, a medical classic of the 20th century. Post is among a handful of individuals awarded the Distinguished Service Award by the National Alzheimer's Association. In 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. I love that, don't you? The Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. So many of you listeners I know are jumping up and down on that one. A frequent contributor to major magazines and newspapers, including the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine, he has appeared on The Daily Show, among other national television programs. Dr. Post is a professor in the Department of Preventative Medicine at Stony Brook University and the founder and director of the Stony Brook Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. A leader in medicine, research, and religion, Dr. Post's latest book, God and Love on Route 80, is a meditation on the meaning of life and the importance of spirituality, and you are all going to love hearing his stories today. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Julie. I'm so pleased to be with you. I am so pleased to be with you, and I have to tell you, I love your publicist, Eileen. She's amazing. And when I, when she first recommended your book, I thought it was fiction, and I'm like, ooh, it's hard for me to do fiction. And she's like, oh, Julie, <laughs> wait, you've got to read this book. She knows me well. Thank you, Eileen. I know you're probably listening because the tagline is The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. So I'm so excited to bring this to our listeners, Stephen. And I'm going to start with my traditional first question. You've never been on my show before. And I like to just ground this conversation within a whole world view and and a lot of what your book talks about. So I want to just ask if you would share with our listeners, what does all things connected mean to you? It means that there is one mind and one heart, and that is present in everything spiritual and material. Mm, I appreciate this succinct answer. And um, it's 
it's as if this, what do I want to say, this brevity of your response cuts right to the truth of it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yes, bam, of course. So Stephen, your book is a delightful read. Your storytelling is powerful and the lessons gleaned are so important in today's world. I'm so glad you chose to share intimate details of your life with the world. Um, Let's start. Can you start by sharing the main thread that weaves throughout the book, the story of the Blue Angel Dream? I think it's so exquisite. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. That is where it begins. Um, you, you know, the, 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 the book is a series of episodes of synchronicity, of mysterious connectedness that go beyond normal causality and that make us feel, and I think it's subjective, that we are much more cherished by this one mind uh, than we sometimes realize in the challenges of life. So I was a kid, I actually grew up on Long Island in Babylon, not Mesopotamia, South Shore of Long Island. And uh, I went to a high school in New Hampshire called St. Paul's, which was a boys Episcopal school. And I read, I was very early on, I was reading a lot of mystical writings and I loved uh, nature up there. I was a bit of a nature mystic. Uh, I didn't go to the hockey games, but I, I loved just the beauty of the place. And when I was 15, I had a recurring dream. It recurred about six times over a year, a little more than a year, actually. And uh, I would wake up, it would be early in the morning. I wasn't quite awake, but I wasn't quite asleep. And uh, I saw a road leading to the west. Uh, It was very foggy and misty. Couldn't see very far on it. And as I walked to the west, uh, I heard a little noise to my left, and I saw uh, the face of a young man with dirty blonde hair uh, about to jump off a ledge of some kind. And then as I walked west, all the the mist uh, alighted because uh, there was a, 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 a face. Uh, it wasn't wing, winged, but it was a face, and it seemed like an angel to me. And it said in a very empathic tone, if you save him, you too shall live. And then uh, the dream ended. And that's the dream. And I didn't think anything of it at the time, except that I told it to my friends in sacred studies. We had a great sacred studies class there. And and, uh, um, they thought it was kind of crazy. But then when it recurred, you know, I told it to people again, and 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 my teacher, my sacred studies teacher, Rod Wells, who was a Yale Episcopal priest, uh, uh, actually uh, drove us, drove me down to Yale Divinity School, and I, I and I gave a talk on my dream uh, in a class for Masters of Divinity students there, uh, and they were studying adolescent spirituality and. And um, there was a Jungian guy there named Jim Diddies who took that uh, dream seriously. And they asked me what it meant. And I said, well, I really don't know. But, you know, I, I, we all read Emerson's Oversoul up there. And most of the, everybody reads it because it's beautiful writing. But I read it because I think it's true. I think that there is an Oversoul. I think that we're all part of this larger mind. And that tells us the reason behind all of the connections, the premonitions, the 
intuitions, the creative insights we have that we just don't really think came from us, but sort of invaded our consciousness. So we talked a lot about that. And then they asked me, the students asked me, well, did you do anything based on this dream? And I said, yeah, I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Not that any kids from St. Paul's ever did that, but I said, you know, the dream pointed west and there was a guy from Reed on campus, so I applied. Hmm. You know, these experiences that you just mentioned, you you your storytelling is entertaining, but so educational at the same time. So you you literally are teaching us about the dreams, the intuition, premonition, synchronicity. And it and it comes to life in all of your unexpected encounters. Uh, it just, it, you know what this book reminds me of, um, Stephen, and the benefit of our listeners is almost like the Celestine prophecy. It's like this adventure okay. and you don't want to put it down. Like, oh, oh, keep okay. going, keep going. I, I love that. So these real life evidence that back up your understanding of what you call infinite mind. You're talking about the oversoul. Um, some of us will just say God, creator, source. Some of us call it the unified field of consciousness now because science caught up with this ancient spiritual wisdom. And, and we now have evidence that there's this unified field of consciousness, this non-local one mind, like you say. So, oh, and I love your phrase. You write, I don't know, maybe a handful of times in the book, an infinite, original, universal mind in which we're all connected and cherished. Yes. I love that. So for you, can you just explain more of how this one mind, this non-local, infinite mind has continued to work in your life and your spiritual path? Well, I would not have the life I have if I hadn't had that dream. Because two summers after that dream, I, I was home. I was going to go to Swarthmore. And uh, my teacher, Rod Wells from St. Paul's, had gotten me a job in the Bronx tutoring. And I loved tutoring. I tutored French-Canadian kids up in New Hampshire, and I, it was just basically my calling. So my mother and father said, wait, the Bronx is too dangerous. You can't do this. And so we argued for three straight days. It wasn't horrible, but it was pretty serious. And then my mother said, look, if you insist on this, I'm not going to help you with Swarthmore. And I said, okay, look, I don't want to take it this far. So I said, dad, what am I going to do this summer for a job? My dad was the president of W and J Sloan's department store on fifth Avenue and 52nd street. And he said, I'll get you a job. You can work at Bill De Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue, which is is not a great thing for a kid with a copy of Siddhartha in his pocket. And so I spent two two weeks cutting cardboard on a on an assembly line, and it was sweaty and hot and and smoky. And after two weeks, on a Friday night, I drove my dad's very second hand gray Mercedes 190, which I think he'd only bought to look good driving us up to New Hampshire. And I went, I, I, I went out to West Hampton Beach on the East End, and I had some friends there. And I told him about 11 at night, I said, you know, I'm going west. I'm going to follow the dream. I was following the dream, but I was also being pushed because things were acrimonious as, as could be at home. And I was tired of that factory. So I drove that car. I drove. I had 50 bucks in my pocket. I had my classical guitar. I had a couple of books, and I just drove west. I drove 
uh, through the Midtown Tunnel. I drove across the George Washington Bridge, and then there was a sign. It said Route 80 West. I could have gone 95 South, but the dream was West. And I drove West, and about 5 in the morning, I was thinking, I have to confess, this is a confession. I was thinking, you know what? I'm going to do a U-turn over the midway and drive home, and my reputation will be completely untarnished. But as it happens, and this is where I believe in alchemy, okay? <laughs> Just as I was thinking that, the generator on this old Mercedes broke down. That means all the lights were out, all the power was out, the engine was dead, and all I could do was basically get to the right-hand shoulder barely, and I didn't know what to do. There was nothing but cornfields and wheat fields for miles and miles and miles. This isn't too far from the Lewisburg exit. And I did what a kid would do. I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote a note in pencil and it read, it became rather notorious in my family, um, <clears throat> to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this automobile to Henry A.V. Post. 44 Davison Lane East West Islip New York 5166695655 from his son Stephen who no longer works in the lampshade factory that was terrible that was the I love that part I love that part <laughs> and then I put my thumb out and a big truck came along and I'm not going to go through the whole trip but basically I got out west I I, I called my mother from uh, Nebraska from a phone booth collect and, 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 and she said, oh, my God, you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, Mom, why'd you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? <laughs> that was another very terrible remark. But I went out to, the, to Chenery Street in the, in the Mission District of San Francisco because my cousin George Lamont lived there. And I spent the summer there. I was in a Nishiron Shosho Buddhist temple uh, chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. I was playing Via Lobos and Granados in Hispanic restaurants and making pretty good money. And I wasn't going to college, but then I drew a really bad draft number and I called the people at Reed and I said, look, I know I turned you down, but could you make a spot for me nicely? They said, yeah. And so early in September out in front of the temple on what was on market and Chenery um, with my mentor Gus and a few people from the, from the temple and George, they gave me a Gahon Zone, which is a Buddhist scroll, and it's got these wonderful symbols. Gus explained, the he was a Japanese-American, the meaning of it, one mind, infinitely connected, mystery, and so forth. And so I put it in my backpack, and I went off on the bus, and I got off at uh, Golden Gate Park, and I walked all the way across the park to that point where you can get on the Golden Gate Bridge, and this is about 7.30 in the morning now. And I walked up the bridge on the left side on the pedestrian ramp. And I could not see more than like four feet in front of me. It was so foggy. And I got to the middle of the bridge. And then I heard this scratching noise to the left. And I, I, I squinted. I looked over, over this railing. And there was a kid who looked an awful lot like the one I saw in my dream. I'm not saying identical, but, you know, scrawny blonde hair and, and leaning off and about to jump. He saw me and I told him, hey, I really hope you don't plan to jump. And then he screamed bloody murder at me. The guy yelled, screamed, Macbeth, you know, life is empty, nothingness. And I, I, I told him that 
you know, we do Macbeth at St. Paul's in Memorial Hall. It sounds a lot more realistic when you're out there hanging on a bridge about to jump. And we just got into this conversation. I said, look, I think it's possible that I was guided right here to meet you. Because I had a dream 3,000 miles away and two years ago. And I think you were in the dream. And he said, you're full of, you know, whatever. And I, <laughs> I told him the dream. And I told him about, about going to Yale Div School. I told him about the fight with mom. I told him about the lampshade factory. I told him about leaving the car. I told him about getting out to George's. And he, he was completely astonished. And, and, and he said, you're the one who should be out here. And I said, yeah, but I'm not. You are. I said, look, I'll, I want, here's what I want to say. If you come to my, this side of the railing, in other words, on the pedestrian side, I'm going to give you something that's going to change your luck. It's going to turn your whole life around. And he said grudgingly, okay. So he walked across and, and I pulled out the Cajon zone and I, I told him that this means one mind, this means universal mystery and so forth. And he was calming down. I don't know if he'd been on drugs or whatever, but he was calming down and we were creating a rapport and I was speaking very quietly and very empathically with him like the blue angel, you know? And, 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 and then I said, look, you can have this, but you got to do me a favor. Here's a note. And that's the second note I wrote to my cousin, George, dear George. Uh, George was a Chapel Hill graduate in Chinese studies and he was a psychologist. I said, this is Harry. Please let him sleep on your floor exactly where I was sleeping. Take him down to the temple and look after him for a while. Cause I'm going up to read. And so Harry did that, and I waved goodbye to Harry. He walked south on the bridge. I walked north, and as I walked north, suddenly, all that mist and fog, it just completely dissipated, and it was a bright blue, shiny sky. And I just knew at that moment that as far as I was aware, the dream had come true. That somehow I I was there for a reason, and um, and I believe more than ever in this idea of a universal mind. Yeah, I love it. The universal mind, you know, the the angel saying, if you save him, you too shall live. That message and, and universal mind, your connectedness with all things, literally is a demonstration of transcending time and space. Your dream was two years prior. <laughs> and when I when I first read it, I'm, I'm imagining a cliff like over the ocean. I wasn't thinking about the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was also imagining that was you on a cliff metaphorically and your higher self was watching. Like I was creating all kinds of stories in my mind. And to have it be so literally answered was really this you know, a profound wake up. And I, I know for you as well, that it was very literal in that he was on the bridge, leaning forward, ready to jump and saving him was really saving his life. There was no metaphor about it. So this, tell our listeners how that experience shifted everything for you moving forward. Well, um, I knew from that time on that I was going to be somehow a healer. Um, and, and, you know, um, I just felt that that was somehow my, my destiny. It wasn't something that I particularly wanted to do because, you know, our little human goals sometimes get in the way of our destiny. 
but I thought I was on a destiny journey. And I went up to Reed College, and, and you know, this was this whole idea of the one mind. Uh, Larry Dossie, by the way, wrote the foreword to God and Love on Route 80, so I was really grateful to him. And was, he did a beautiful job. Yeah. Beautiful job. And and so I, so in January, it doesn't snow up in Portland, you know, but it gets very rainy and slushy. And I'm sitting in the coffee shop on a Friday night, uh, and it's like 9 o'clock Pacific time. And this guy comes bounding in, and he's, his name is Andy, and he's got a motorcycle jacket on. And he's kind of wild-eyed. He looks like he's, you know, pretty lit. And he says, I've got a new Harley-Davidson shovel hauser the fastest bike on earth who wants to go for a ride and i just said yeah i'll do it and i went out there and i jumped on the back of that bike and he took off and he hit 160 180 miles an hour he went through every red light every stop sign and he got out on the pacific coast highway slipping and sliding oh. all over the road and i thought i was dead and he drove south for about an hour screaming and yelling into the wind and and i was crying i was crying I thought I was dead. And, and he, then he did this like evil Knievel U-turn over the midway. He drove back same speed and he dropped me off exactly where he had picked me up. So I staggered across the ravine bridge to the Ackerman dormitory. And I never answered the payphone. There was a payphone on the wall. They had them in those days. As soon as I walked across the threshold, the phone rang and I felt kind of pushed. I didn't see anything pushing me, but I just felt pushed energetically to pick up the phone. And it was the only time I ever did that. And I picked it up and I said, hello. And it was my mom in New York. And she said, Stevie, I'm sweating. I just had this incredible premonition. I woke up. Uh, I thought you were dead. And I went on and I told her the story about Andy and the motorcycle. And I said, I thought I was dead too. And we kind of realized that somehow um, her premonition had gone over 3,000 miles, including the Rocky Mountains, you know. Uh, and somehow she knew there uh, in New York that I was greatly imperiled. So, um, and she later, she, did, she was an abstract expressionist artist. Uh, she did a beautiful painting called The Blue Angel Dream, which is in the book. Mm. Um, so that's another example of this connectedness yeah, and those two things, uh, those two significant events really pair up to to really anchor this modern day mystic that's inside of you. It's like it really helped you um, as you write. I do have to tell you, that's the one story I didn't like in your book. <laughs> when okay. I'm reading this motorcycle, I'm just cringing. You know, it's slushy, it's cold, it's rainy, and you're going 180 mile an hour on no stoplights. And I'm like cringing that whole chapter going, yeah. no, I don't like this story. But it <laughs> did solidify in you this, um, like I said, you, you have become a modern day mystic. I love that about the the rest of the book. And then these stories kind of weave through the book, which is really cool. So Stephen, we just have like a few minutes before break. So I just want to pause before we go farther because I'm going to kind of change the subject after break. But I have to tell you, I have an affinity for your experience. Two reasons. And, and one is... I live just a few miles from what you call Route 80. You know, we call it Interstate 80, but I am just 
15 miles off of Interstate 80 in Nebraska. And isn't that cool? You you stopped in Nebraska and made that call home. And and I was waiting for like when you took off on on Route 80, I'm waiting for the when does he go through Nebraska? Does he say anything about Nebraska? And then I'm like, he doesn't say much about a lot of states. So he's not going to say anything about Nebraska. And there you were. You stopped in Lincoln, Nebraska. Just about five minutes before Lincoln. You know, there was a. Uh, a rest area on on the highway and with a payphone. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Well, too cool, too cool. So I feel I I love how you've used Route 80. Some people will say route. I say route. Depends on how I'm using that word. But some people will say the route to get there, the Route 80. But you really do weave that in with all the lessons. You name it. It's it's an important piece of the story. And there's so much more. So we're going to take a quick break. And after that, we'll be back with more from this modern day mystic, Stephen Post. We'll be right back. Meditation channel, nonstop meditation music, 24 hours a day in the new Empower Radio app. Music to empower your meditation, help you relax, sleep, or provide a calm background while you work. The Empower Meditation channel is interruption-free. Listen now with the Empower Radio app, free in the App Store, or listen online at empower.fm. Soothe your soul, calm your mind. The Empower Meditation channel. Chris, can you put the video game controller down for a second? I can talk and play. Oh, I'm totally annihilating this punk kid in Nebraska. I just feel like you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. M2, M2. Well, you know, you still ride your skateboard to work. There's the comic book collection, the race car bed. Look, I'm young at heart, but I put money to my 401k every paycheck. I picked up a few savings tips at feedthepig.org. I have control of my financial life now, and that feels pretty grown up. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. Putting some money from every paycheck into a savings account or contributing to your 401k can make a big difference later. For free ideas and easy tips on ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. So, I bet I look like a grown up to you now. Well, except for the footy pajamas, I'd have to agree. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. So you see, son, good manners are important. Should I go through it again? Yes. Yes, please. Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open, don't speak with your mouth full, keep your elbows off the table. Share your things, play nice, and generally treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But two minutes twice a day, making sure they brush their teeth is easier. And it could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. Visit 2min2x.org to find out more. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Well, hey, inspired by our conversation today, I'd like to share it with us and perhaps listen to you again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming 
upcoming guests. Again, that's the drjulieshow.com. On the leading edge of personal, social, and global transformation, I invite you to be a way shower, a change agent, and make connections that inspire and accelerate our collective awakening and planetary healing. Stay connected every week with my newsletter where you'll find meaningful content, opportunities, and inspiration. Sign up at juliecrawlemail.com. Again, that's juliecrawlemail.com. And you can visit Stephen online in a couple of places. Check out Stephen G. Post. That's Stephen with a P-H. G is in George. StephenGPost.com. And unlimitedloveinstitute.org. I love that. I'm going to have Stephen talk about that after a bit. But first, welcome back, Stephen. Thank you, Dr. Julie. You're welcome. I just want to really acknowledge all of your, uh, number one, your spiritual path has led you to explore so many different faiths and spiritual practices. And then you went on in your formal education to do just that. And, and now you're really bridging um, both the science and spirituality. I'm going to ask you another question about that in a minute. But this spiritual exploration and all these paths played a significant role in your story as well. Can you talk about the many different pathways to spiritual growth and how you see that? Oh, there are many, many windows into the divine, if you, if you will, uh, you know, nature, um, love, family, creativity. Uh, it's, it's a long, it's a long list and, and different strokes for different folks. Um, but, you know, in in my case, I think, um, it, you know, in part, it comes down to a experience that I had uh, also at St. Paul's when I was about 16. Um, there was a great painter, uh, Norman Rockwell, who did a sort of an iconic cover of the Saturday Evening Post called The Golden Rule. And all these people are looking very tranquil and very content, and they're focusing their minds on this gold-lettered statement, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And um, Rockwell actually came up to St. Paul's and he gave a talk about this. And he said, do you see the halo? And uh, people didn't quite see it, but then he said, look at this. And he pointed with a dowel, you know, a, a piece of wood. And here's, he said, a white circle from the top beard of the rabbi all the way down through the toddler's clothing and up on the left. And he said, I'm not that religious, but when you live by the golden rule, when you use your mind and your gifts and your talents, which everybody has, um, to contribute to the lives of others, you will come into this field of energy, call it a morphic field of love if you want. But uh, he said, it's like surfing. He said, when you surf, he wasn't a surfer, he said, but when you surf, you have to paddle like crazy to catch the wave. But once you're on the wave, all you need to do is stand up and balance. And I think if you, if you contribute, if you live that golden rule, it's in every sacred scripture, not the negative version, which just means, you know, don't elbow some innocent person in the back. But if you really think, how can I use my gifts to help others? Then you do that, you pursue that, and you will eventually come into this energy and the wave will just take you away. 
and you can count on it. Mm. You also have a foundation in Christianity, and at one point you talked about Jesus being fully one with the infinite mind. I'm thinking about that morphic field of love that you talked about. We so often associate Jesus with love, and when I was a young girl, I also saw that connection as this impetus for his healing capacity. Um, Can you just share for a moment your understanding of Jesus and his healing miracles, how it's interconnected perhaps with infinite mind so hypothesis if this infinite one mind and this pure unlimited love really is the sustaining essence of the universe and everything else is just really derived from it then it's very powerful and it should be very healing so I believe in some energy healing that I read about, and I've met some energy healers who uh, really view themselves as channels through which this love energy, it's just pure love energy, flows. And, and, and so, so it makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, there are natural healing processes in everybody's mind and body and, 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 and heart, um, but you can... You can move it along. You can um, you can expedite it a bit if you just focus your mind very deeply on their image, and you put yourself forward uh, as an instrument of divine love. So I'm I'm a believer in in that, um, and I think increasingly uh, we're coming to understand it. It's the great mystery, I, you know. Uh, but it's something that eventually I think we will understand in great detail scientifically. Yeah, and so that brings me to the science. So scientifically, you are here working in a research realm, you're, you're teaching, you're in academia, but you're really at the crossroads of science and spirituality. You talked about winks and whispers of divine love. And I, I really love that. I love those terms, winks and whispers. And it, it puts the sacred into the science of consciousness in the unified field. When, when you talk about divine love and this morphic field of love, it's not this static, um, empty, sterile, scientific version of energy and energy medicine. It, it really warms it up. I love that about how you write. So there's something endearing about trusting the infinite mind as this unitary intelligence that pervades everything and heals everything and makes our world and our experiences in life sacred and holy. I appreciate that. And that's one of the things um, Dr. Larry Dossie talked about in your foreword as well. So how have you in your academic life and work and career, how have you been able to gap bridge this gap between science and spirituality because you've done a beautiful job and um, you have the trust of so many in traditional medical model as well as the spirituality and, and religions aspect. I'm just wondering about that story of how you've been able to bridge this gap. Oh my goodness. You know, what a challenge uh, it has been. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I was a biology major uh, in college, and I went off to UPenn and studied immunology for a while, and I quit. I dropped out of a Ph.D. program, and I went to the University of Chicago 
Divinity School to study with Mersha Eliade, who was writing his book on shamanism. And Joseph Campbell was in and out of there, you know, half the year. And all these great people in history of religions. And Chick Sent Me High was writing Flow, which is about a spiritual energy where you lose all sense of time and place in your creative passion. So I was so fortunate to be there. And just at the end of that experience, the, you know, the people in the med school, they found out that I had some history in basic science. So they invited me to uh, teach in a course at the Pritzker School, which I did for a couple of years on social issues in medicine. And I just sort of been straddling, you know, the sort of the mystical side and, 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 the, and the religious scientific side. And, you know, I've had RO1 grants from the National Institute of Health and genetics and aging and so forth. But, but I've never, never stopped thinking and writing and feeling and experiencing the mystical thing. And I met Sir John Templeton in 1990 at a dinner with Larry Dossie, by the way, at a <laughs> golf course in, in Virginia near Dulles Airport. And, he, and Larry wanted to meet Sir John. And Larry talked to his, about his ideas on one mind or, or um, you, know, well, you, you know all about that. And, and Sir John funded his conferences in the mm. Southwest. Uh, Sir John was so engaged with that idea. So I just, I've just been darn lucky, and sometimes I've been a little bit persecuted. You know, I, I, got a fa I got a fax from Sir John in 2000. I was at Case Med School in Cleveland. Been there. I was there for 20 years. And it said, Stephen, we need to – it was from Lyford Key in the Bahamas. He said, we have to study the greatest asset in the universe, which is love. And then he said, I don't mean just human love. <laughs> okay, he said, I mean the love that made humans. And I faxed back to Sir John, Sir John, maybe we should call the Institute for Research on Creative Altruism. And I, I said that because altruism is sort of a dry, sciencey word. It's not that controversial. And he faxed back, no, I think unlimited love, up to $8.9 million. And I faxed back, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. I'll tell you something, that was the right answer. And he was correct because... It invited this rapport with the spiritual traditions that a word like altruism doesn't do. So I've just been grateful. I've been able to fund studies at like 80 universities, uh, and and some of them have been very significant. And I've had all these researchers from you know Esther Sternberg to uh, Matt Lee at Harvard. All of them have cut their careers on the study of love and energy. It's been great, and and I. Uh, I just, and, and now, you know, it's funny. When I got to Stony Brook, I spent 20 years at Case Western. I got a job at Stony Brook Med. And there was, I, I, it was, the, the, the first day I was here, some little cub reporter from the, uh, from the daily newspaper, which is called the, 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 uh, the Beacon Herald, put an article, front page, it said, unlimited love comes to Stony Brook. And and I I was shocked because how did you know where is she? so she'd been going through media and she found this stuff and and so so I came up this the escalator my first day at work and there was a guy standing up in front of, on top of the escalator looking down at me quite sternly he, and he had arms like Mister Clean and he looked at me and he said. <laughs> He was Eastern European. Are you Dr. Post? And I said, yes, I am. He said, are you going to save us? <laughs> Which was hilarious. 
<laughs> and I said, well, I'm not sure I'm going to do that, but uh, I'm happy to be here. And we got along. We actually became close friends. But yeah, I mean, a guy like me in a scientific medical environment, um, you know, it's it's a little bit risque. But on the other hand, um, it's been great, and I'm honored, and I'm I'm I love the people here, and I and eventually, you know, you are just on the level of heart, you close the gap, you know. Mm. Thank you. I love that. On the level of heart, you close the gap. You know, you. You just talked about unlimited love. You have written divine love. You've mentioned creative love. And I mentioned that in the intro. I'm going to ask you how we unlock those deeper spiritual capacities after this. But how, how do you define, what, what's, the dif, what's the difference in these definitions? Is it the same thing? Unlimited love, divine love, creative love? Yeah, they're all pretty much linked. Um, I... I um, I do have a definition of love, but I did not coin it myself. I borrowed it from a great psychiatrist at the University of Chicago by the name of Harry Stack Sullivan. And the the definition is when the happiness and the security of another is as meaningful and real to you as your own, or maybe more so, you love that person. No Latin, no Greek you know, no Persian, nothing. It's just everyday language. And, and it, it's, it, it's very powerful, but human love sort of, it, it's sometimes very unwise and overindulgent. It sometimes flickers in and out. It can be myopic and so forth. So in the end, um, divine love is a, a perfectly wise, perfectly extensive, perfectly intensive, perfectly inclusive um, form of love that can invade us and lift us up beyond our normal human capacities. Mm. And how do we unlock those capacities? No pressure. <laughs> no pressure yeah. here. Well, well, that's where the golden rule comes in because, I, I mean, you can't do it if you're hurting people. You can't do it if you're living impurely and, and so forth. But if you honestly do your best to catch that wave the energy will find you. So like, I was in my office, you know, this is not in the book, but this is like five years ago. And there was a young Korean American woman from Queens. And she was thinking about leaving medical school because she felt that she just didn't fit in and she was really struggling. And, and I was, had a busy schedule that afternoon. And I said, look, I really want to talk to you, but let's make an appointment. You can email me. And then I right here in this chair, I felt this incredible warm energy over my right shoulder. Now, I didn't see anything. I'm not hallucinating. But I felt something very powerful. And it was so powerful that I paused. And I said, wait a minute. This, this just feels like I should put everything aside and devote the afternoon to helping this young student, which is exactly what I did. And she did take a year off, but she did well. I would visit her with my wife in, in Queens, and we'd have... Korean lunches sometimes, and she wrote a lot. She discovered she was a writer, and now she's practicing preventive medicine. Uh, she's done very, very well. She's married, and and her, her life turned out beautifully. But it wasn't me. I wasn't the. I had nothing to do with that intuition. It was just. It felt like an invasive experience. Something just kind of came into my space. And, and it came from way beyond me, 
And I knew from that energy that I was supposed to put everything aside and, and love this student. I love you using the word invasive. You do use that in the book. And I think it's a good um, barometer for us when we're looking at, at that um, unlimited love, that divine love, that creative love, and that, that infinite mind that's coming in. It's like it invades our space. It's not of us or through us. It's just invading us through this unified field. I, I, I really appreciate that word. Um, okay, in this world with COVID-19 accelerating so much social change and really challenging our traditional medical model, what would you say is the most important thing that we can learn from COVID, but also um, about our health and healing? Like, really, what's important in our health and healing? And what have we learned from COVID? What can we learn from COVID? How do we move forward? I just recovered from um, 12 days of fever and learned so much. In fact, was in a state of unlimited, infinite mind for weeks since then. It's been a really fun experience to just witness what's happening. But what are what are your lessons now when you think about COVID-19? Well, at many different levels, uh, you know, um, this hospital here was filled with COVID patients for a long time. It was one of the epicenters around New York. <clears throat> and I saw so many wonderful nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists and clinical social workers doing so much, even at the very beginning when they really didn't have enough protective gear. And they were sleeping in the red roof inns along the highway because <clears throat> they didn't want to go home to their families. I came in here every day for the last 14 months. I didn't miss a day. And sometimes, you know, I was honored to consult with COVID families who were confused because they didn't know why grandma was up in the intensive care unit. <clears throat> they really had no idea what was going on, but the choices had to be made. You know, do you want grandma to go from a non-invasive breathing mask so she can still at least talk on the phone? <clears throat> she's 85. She's got Parkinson's and dementia. Uh, do you want to really put her on a respirator where she'll be sedated and she probably will never get off and never speak again? So I was able to explain these kinds of quandaries to people. And that was very meaningful to me. So I I, um, I feel like it, it brought out, it was difficult, but it brought out a side of our interdependence and our vulnerability that we sometimes forget about because we think we're so independent. We think we're so invulnerable. But the fact is that when we get sick, you know, we are a family. We are a human family. And and we need to recognize that all the time, not just part of the time. And COVID, for all the destruction involved, um, it also brought people together, I think, and made them realize this kind of oneness that I talk about. On a spiritual level, a lot of people had very deep spiritual experiences like you're talking about, Dr. Julie. I mean, you know, they just, you know, I mean, they never meditated or prayed so much in their lives. But it also points out just that even at the bodily level, you know, we are interdependent. And so I think it brings people together. These kinds of sufferings are not for no reason. Yeah. 
Thanks for your reflection on that. I, it's hard not to to really ask that um, when I have this beautiful resource on the other line here having this conversation. And it, it's an important conversation that perhaps needs our continued exploration into that. But saying that, um, you co-founded or founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Tell us about that. And um, what are you working on? What's new? Is it? <laughs> yeah, let us know. Fill us in. I love yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love this. Yeah, his invitation with all that money in front of you. I'd love, I'd love to hear yeah. what you're working on. Well, Sir John had written a book to be on. You know, this is the great investor in the Temple and Foundation uh, funds. Uh, he's passed away in in 2008. Um, Sir John and I were very close, and uh, I actually kind of helped him get involved with positive psychology and Marty Seligman and all these different kinds of things. So I was honored to know Sir John, and I love Sir John. And uh, so he wanted something on pure unlimited love, not human love, but the love that made humans. And so, you know, we funded a lot of really great stuff. I mean, we've done, we did a national survey of adult Americans, okay, 18 years of age and older, several thousand of them. And it was random. Uh, it, it, we, we asked them, have you ever had a direct experience of divine love? And about 80% of them, believe it or not, despite all the secularism and everything, they said yes. Mm. And then about half of that number said they've had it more than once. And about another half then said they've had it very frequently. And there's about 10% that say they just feel that way all the time. And what's interesting is they divide because some of them have had these sort of direct invasive experiences that we were talking about earlier but others say, well, it didn't really come that way. It came through someone else. So I was really in a kind of a desperate situation, and I was praying and meditating, and somehow the perfect person at the perfect time, synchronicity, you know, the perfect person shows up with the perfect words or the perfect gift, and somehow I just know that this is not normal. It's it's beyond normal. It's 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 spiritual. It's... It's it's not normal cause and effect. It's it's uncaused causality. Carl Jung referred to it as. It's just too good to be true, and it's actually more rational to think that this is this infinite mind, cherishing infinite mind, working in our lives, bringing us together and helping us through the hard times. So I I that so this book actually came came out with Oxford about uh, five years ago. And it's done, you know, it's it's done pretty well in the sort of stodgy world of, uh, you know, what should I say, academic uh, theology and so forth. Uh, but it is an important important study, and 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 now I'm working on paradoxical lucidity with a whole lot of people because I write a lot about Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, and and I've always noticed, even from the time my mother, my grandmother had Alzheimer's way way back in the late 70s, that uh, there were people who they may seem like they're gone, their, their, their chin is down on their chest, they haven't spoken a word, even for a couple of months, or more, longer, longer than that. They, you can say, well, they're gone, they're absent, they're a husk, they're a shell, all these negative metaphors. And then, lo and behold, 
they come back into themselves. And, and you can do this. You can stimulate it, by the way, with music. That's why the music and memory thing is so interesting for caregivers, personalized music. You can do it with poetry. You can do it with lots of different devices. But you can actually bring people back into themselves. And even for a brief period of time, it could be just a few minutes, they'll be able to communicate. And so what is paradoxical lucidity? And I just got a, a new blurb from Larry Dossie, okay? I have a new book coming out with Hop, Johns Hopkins University Press. Okay, that's a science press called Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And there's a whole chapter on paradoxical lucidity and what it says about the spiritual essence of the human being, that even though the brain can have atrophied, there is still underneath that a full human spiritual being. And for all we know, that, that, that being's ahead of us. It's already gone down to the train station and got one foot on that train bound for glory. Okay, So we just have to be humble before it and inclusive and accepting. And sometimes people with dementia can be more spiritual than you would ever imagine. So that's the, and so he wrote a beautiful book, uh, a blurb, and, he, and, and, and it basically says, you know, bravo, because we need to think of these individuals in, in their spiritual consciousness, not because they have some linear rational capacity, not because they have strong memories, but they're conscious beings and they're one with the infinite mind. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank you, Stephen. This has been such a delightful conversation for me. I want to share with you the story of my grandmother before we close, because my grandmother had Alzheimer's disease. And at the end, when she didn't remember anyone and rarely talked, if someone would begin reciting the Lord's Prayer, she could do the entire Lord's Prayer audibly. And 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 enunciate every words and speak so clearly and say the Lord's Prayer. But she was so, had most of her body on that train already bound for glory and was barely there. So there's something really beautiful about that. Thanks for, thanks for that reminder for me in this moment. So beautiful. Stephen, we're going to have to do this again. It was really fun. And I look forward to um, reading your next book. And following you and following the, the Institute, um, anytime anybody talks about unlimited love, I want to I be there and follow it. So thank you so much for joining us today. That's so nice of you, Dr. Julie. I'm really happy and grateful to be on your program. And I wish your listeners the very, very best. Mm, thank you. And I want to leave you, friends and listeners, with words from Stephen himself. He wrote, the universal mind, which is always a force for good, is perfectly reliable if what we ask for is creative and loving. We need not be anxious because the answers and solutions are already on their way. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.